Welcome to Handmaids and Harlots, a weekly podcast that explores both the Handmaid's Tale and Harlots series produced by Hulu. This podcast is marked as heavy spoilers, as it will include episode-by-episode synopsis, as well as analysis of both shows and their written source material. The textual references for this podcast are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Miss Atwood's book and forthcoming second installment, Testaments. Textual references for all Harlots-related podcasts will be taken from Hallie Rubinold's book, The Covent Garden Ladies, Pimp, General Jack, and the Extraordinary Story of Harris's Lists, as well as interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Harlots by Hulu. Join me, Ray, and my co-host, Kay, as we watch, read, and discuss these two provocative and intelligent stories. We open on the sounds of a woman breathing heavily, soon followed in by the chanting of handmaids in their intone of breathe, breathe, hold, hold, exhale, exhale. We meet of Andy in the birthing bed and the camera moves to show the woman in a semicircle chanting away. June stands in the hallway where you can see the wives doing their own birthing ceremony behind her. She's not chanting. She does not stand at her with her arms out like the others. Her arms are crossed with her back to the wives. She began thinking about the Martha Francis who was hung last episode, that before Gilead she was a sale manager for a theatrical supply company, that she tutored kids after school and how she loved Hannah. Now she's dead and Hannah's gone. With that thought, we see a curtailed of Matthew bringing in cloth from the room going to greet June when Alma cuts her off, telling her not to speak to June. June places the blame fully on of Matthew and of Matthew is slammed into by another handmaid. She slips past the others to give a cloth to Aunt Lydia before being offered a glass of water by another handmaid, who pulls the glass back to spit into it. Janine and Aunt Lydia see this before Matthew moves away from the group. Janine leaves the bed to tell June she's being mean before June rebukes her by mentioning the Martha was executed because of her and if Matthew doesn't feel sorry for it, that if Matthew should keep her mouth shut. To a meek reply from Janine that she was only doing as Aunt Lydia asks, I know, is the only answer that Janine receives before she returns to the birthing bed. Aunt Lydia mentions that of Andy's contractions have stopped and they should give her peace and quiet. Alma knocks over a metal bowl of ice, blaming it on of Matthew. Another handmaid tells her she's a butterfinger. Lydia dismisses them to return to the birthmobile. Aunt Lydia asks for June to tell her friends to cool it, which June tries to dismiss that she knows nothing going on. June then mentions the punishments that would normally be doled out for her, but the possibility of going TV in front of the world would be why she's untouchable. June's told to go to the birthmobile, but not all of them will be going home yet. We cut to the blame circle in the red center, with June sitting in the middle, Aunt Lydia going through the reasons that the Martha had been salvaged, theft of a child. She questions who could have allowed her to conceive of an act and whose fault it was the Martha died. The circle responds to both that it was June's fault. June speaks up and tells Aunt Lydia that it is her fault. Aunt Lydia says that testifying unburdens of sin, that June thinks herself unempty of sin. June responds that no one is empty of sin. Aunt Lydia reveals there was someone else that June hurt, saying that it was Hannah that was hurt by it all, that she was forced to move from her friends, lost her home, lost her Martha. Ask June whose fault it was, and June responds that it was hers, her voice cracking. When Lydia cracks down and mentions there are others to take example from, the godly and good in their own group, June raises her hand. Aunt Lydia calls on her, and June says she has another testifying moment of Matthew doesn't want her baby. Janine curses in her seat as Aunt Lydia moves towards the girls, her hands on of Matthew's shoulders as she asks her to testify. Matthew says that it was only 
only a feeling for a second, but Aunt Lydia calls for the two girls to switch places. Of Matthew begs that the feeling was only for a second, that the pregnancy feels different, that her other babies were boys, and that this one could be a girl, and she was scared of what the girl's life would be. Aunt Lydia mentions that's up to God, and Aunt Matthew thinks she knows better than God. This calls for the circle to chant sinner multiple times. When she begins to break down and cry, Aunt Lydia tells her not to be a crybaby, to which the handmaid, still pointing at her, chant crybaby multiple times until Aunt Lydia comes over and brushes away the whimperings of Matthew's tears away. Aunt Lydia stops by June for a second before walking off and turning around to stare at the girls. We hear a school bell beginning to ring as the scene changes to that of a classroom. There's Aunt Lydia as a school teacher, playing the que- playing the game 20 questions with a child in an empty classroom. As she takes her seat on her desk, the back of the room has a banner saying Miss Clement's fourth grade class. The principal calls over Lydia as she walks towards him. She says she left the mother another message before security mentions it's 6.15. Lydia says it's too cold to wait outside and she'll take him home with her. She quotes a Bible verse about entertaining strangers to which Mr. Thorne responds with a corresponding book and verse. Lydia looks back at the child asking if he was hungry. When he responds a little, she informs Mr. Thorne that all that was packed for his lunch was a bag of potato chips. She tries calling the mother again, leaving a message for her that she would be taking Ryan home with her and to call her back. She hopes that Ryan is hungry for chili. Noelle hurries in and hugs her son before she says that she was held up at work. Lydia says that he was hungry and Noelle quickly mentions they could stop the drive-through on the way home, to which Ryan protests they had that last night. Lydia offers for both of them to join her for dinner, that she made enough to feed an army. Noelle at first tries to say no, but gives in to come home without Lydia. As Lydia is leaving, the principal and her exchange a moment, and he wishes her a good night. The next scene is inside Lydia's home, where Ryan is working on his homework, and Noelle is venting about her job, the assumptions made about her while working there. When Noelle swears, Lydia stares at her before Noelle apologizes. Lydia tries to help, mentioning she might need a new job, and Noelle returns by asking if Lydia has anyone to which she mentions she was married, but it was a mistake. Ryan turns around and questions the answer to 20 questions is, was I Thomas Edison? And Lydia rejoices in his correct answer. She tells Noelle how blessed she is. Noelle says that she believes Ryan deserves more, better, and Lydia tells her that she could be better. We return to the Red Center where Aunt Lydia is walking down the rows of handmaids humbly with their eyes bent down towards the ground. When she gets to the front of the line, she looks over each girl and excuses them. When she gets to June, she stops, and June's head is held high. Lydia thanks June for sharing the information before she is dismissed as well. It cuts to Lawrence reading in a chair as June returns, mentioning she's back early. June asks if he'd learned anything about Hannah or the Mackenzies, and he cuts her off with a no, and not to ask again. Lydia doesn't know where she is, and that he doesn't know anyone that does. As he dismisses her to her room, he closes the sliding doors on her. After which, June walks up the stairs. She grabs onto the doorway, dragging her nails over the wood with her forehead against the frame as she shakily breathes. We move on to later that night, with June dressed down for bed, her hair down and her arm over the edge of the bed as she drags her nail over the carpet and asks, Who can remember pain once it's over? All that remains is shadow, not even in the mind, in the flesh. Pain marks you, but too deep to see. Out of sight, out of mind. When Sienna opens the door and admonishes that she's still awake, but tells June the birth mobile is back. We move back to the house of Avandi, with the final scenes of the birth. With the wife behind her, June stands out of the way of the group, watching them. She's thinking of the jump rope rhyme. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. All about what a child might be when they grow up, and she muses that the list is shorter, especially for girls now. As the child is bored, it's mentioned that it's a girl, and with the celebration, there's a moment of silence before the other aunt shakes her head. The baby didn't survive. With that, Aunt Lydia takes the baby, wraps in a blanket, and starts to leave. The wife begins to beg for her child and says the child isn't dead. The women circle around each other in their groups to comfort one another. Aunt Lydia leads a crying of Matthew off while June goes to the baby's side. 
She removes the blanket to show the child's cord was wrapped around her neck. The other aunt returns and tells June to go to her sister, and we see an overhead view of the uh, handmaids comforting of Andy. As June undresses at home, she mentions she didn't know how to feel at first about the baby, but she knows now that it was relief. Lawrence enters and asks about the sex of the baby because Mrs. Lawrence wants to know. June just shoots out that the child's dead. Lawrence says that she doesn't need to tell Miss Lawrence about that, that she should play cards with her tomorrow. June snaps back that he acts like he cares about his wife, but all that he did was build this life and it is killing her. He's quiet for a moment before he says, that probably felt good to say. He walks, leaves the room. June gives a small laugh after he is gone. The next scene moves to Aunt Lydia and the two aunts sitting around a table trying to place handmaids with appropriate families. They first talk about of Andy... And Lydia responds that the Alstons won't have her back and that the word will have spread. The talk of Joseph and how they've tried with her. They all raise a glass of what appears to be brandy and grace before the scene quickly changes. We see Lydia on the couch on Christmas night handing a present to Ryan. They appear to become closer. Ryan even hugs her and thanks his Aunt Lydia. They got something for her as well. Inside is a makeup kit for herself, and Noelle says that Aunt Lydia has so much love to give and she should share it with someone. They talk about Noelle's boyfriend before she mentions the newest boyfriend she has has two kids and that he says he's leaving his wife for her. We see Lydia sheepishly enter what looks to be a Moroccan bar. The noises and people seem to overwhelm her for a moment before she catches sight of Mr. Thorne. It's revealed that it's New Year's and the two are sharing a table discussing his past uh, New Year's and sharing champagne. We're told that teaching is Lydia's second career, but that she was also in family law. She says it was frustrating because she couldn't help as many children as she wishes she could. The two exchange a, a moment of fondness to each other and say grace before they start to eat. It then cuts to the karaoke section of the restaurant. Thorin singing for a more moment before he drags Aunt Lydia on stage and the two sing a duet together before we see the two of them slow dancing before the countdown ends and the two share a soft kiss just to the cheek, continuing their dance as people around them sing Auld Lang Sang. Jim, Mr. Thorin, stands in front of Aunt Lydia's tree discussing how he hadn't put up his tree this year because his son hadn't come home and his wife had passed three years ago. Lydia said she'd invited him if she had known, and he mentions next Christmas. She sits on the couch and holds her hand out to him. After he joins her, they begin to kiss. Lydia starts to take it further before her hand drifts below the belt, and he pulls away, saying he's not quite ready yet. Lydia pulls away and starts beating herself up while he says that he had a great time, saying he'd love to see her again, and she mentions she'll see him at school. After he leaves, she starts to wipe the bank off in tears. She looks at herself in the bathroom mirror before... After a moment, she begins to slam her hands against the glass until it cracks. The next scene moves to Lydia talking to a CPS worker with Mr. Thorne in the background, talking about how Noelle is unable to keep a steady job, how she sends the child to school hungry, and that he's been unwashed in dirty clothes. The caseworker asks if they go to church. She says she's tried. There's a shot of her feet on a red felt dot, her feet hands trying to pull her pullover over her body, and Lydia mentions about Noelle's dating situations. Mr. Thorne asks if this is enough to trigger an emergency removal, to which Lydia nods, answering about the law of reporting moral weakness not looking him in the eye. The caseworker asks for her signature on the work that rhymes with a good foster hope. Lydia mentions that there are so many people with so much love to give. Noelle bursts into the school, running over and asking for an explanation, being told that the hearing's in six weeks when she can appeal. Noelle cries that Lydia is ruining his life, and Lydia says she forgives her, before looking towards Thorne, who walks away from her. We return to Lydia looking over the cases, saying that June's only a problem after being with the Waterfords, that her walking partners have been trouble. They discuss that maybe some of the recent problems come from being in the Lawrence household, the shot being of the 
closed folder of the Lawrence's. June stands in the snow, umbrella opened as she waits for her walking partner. The shot inside of her bonnet shows of Matthew walking up. June explains she knows she heard of Matthew, and she enjoyed it. That she's enjoyed all the pain recently. The aunts, the wives, Commander Lawrence, that they all deserve to suffer. Of Matthew greets her, and June returns the greeting. We return to loaves and fishes. June says she understands of Glenn, how she felt when she put on that po- that bomb vest. Janine tries to comfort of Matthew, and of Matthew pulls away. Aunt Lydia calls for June to come over to her, and of Matthew looks towards June before following Janine. June thinks she understands Emily as well, how she felt right before stabbing Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia says she has failed June, and that she wants her girls to be safe and protected, that they would think to remove her from the unorthodox home of Commander Lawrence. Behind her, we see of Matthew starting to break down, holding a can of lobster. Janine tries to comfort her again, but she pulls away. Of Matthew is staring at June when June turns her face away and smiles. Janine touches of Matthew again before of Matthew snaps and starts beating Janine with a can. When a guardian goes to touch of Matthew, she slams his face with a glass jar of beans. When he's down, she takes the gun and begins to swing around in a circle with the gun raised. There is only one person not trying to dodge the gun. June stands there like she has been the whole time. When the gun does settle on her, she's smiling. She looks to Lydia before she nods. Uh, Matthew turns the gun on Lydia, and before Lydia calls out her name, Natalie, she's shot by the guardians, doing a full twist in the air before she lands on the ground dead. We see a shot of June's face as Lydia calls out no. Natalie is dragged out of loaves and fishes, a trail of blood leading behind her. June stands over the blood as others look on in silence. Only the music of the store playing before Doris days, whatever will be, will be, begins to play. You know, that show was still on TV when I was a kid. It was my, like, my very first favorite show. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I just know the song. That's all I know. (laughs) Good morning, Gilead. Good morning, handmaids, commanders, wives. Can't forget Martha's. And aunties. Eyes. And other fans of the show, all of you beautiful people, cough, cough, <laughs> cough, cough, Kafka. No, wait, I didn't mean that quite that way. Anyway, <laughs> so welcome to another episode of Handmaids and Harlots. And this one is episode what? <sighs> that would be eight unfit. Yeah, I can't. I can't say because I get it wrong every time. So okay, gives me I have to, to let do. her do it. Right? <laughs> so it's episode eight on fit, and wow, wow, just wow is kind of the response among yeah. others. So we're recording this actually, as I should be at releasing this episode. Um, and and. Me and Kay would just like to make a couple brief apologies for you, our audience. Unfortunately, this week has basically been a shit show for both of us in real life. Mm-hmm. On top of having two episodes we needed to do. So we're a little behind the eight ball. So as you find this episode, maybe later today, this evening, or early tomorrow morning, Please have mercy on us for our late arrival. We were thinking of you, but having to confront other things this week and just not able to get to recording together until now because life sucks sometimes. Just blame me. It'll be fine. (laughs) Don't blame her. It's not just her fault. (laughs) 
Drama queen? Bitch, please. Please. I just want to talk for a hot minute about this article with the actress who plays off Matthew. Yeah, Ashley Lithrop on what on that shocking off Matthew twist in The Handmaid's Tale. It's in, from Harper's. And she says, let's see, everything she believes has fallen. It's not just so it's not just June. She said, I think of Matthew is a survivor. And I think that she does. So she does believe to a certain extent that she is right to suddenly realize that everything you believe is wrong, however, and to be confronted with the horror of Gilead for the first time is what makes her break. Mm -hmm. So it is that all of her children were boys. And so she knew they were going to be raised by command. Like she could fantasize, right, a future for them. Yeah, they'll they'll be a commander. Yeah, but if they're the, going to be adopted by a commander, they're going to end up one. But these, this girl, on the other hand, is that's knowing she's giving birth to a girl is it is really it, and then waking up to exactly what's going on, which is why. She, at first, she's really shitty to June about Holly. Mm -hmm. And then why she says, no, I've actually been praying for your daughter and for your husband that she doesn't have to come back here. Because, mm -hmm. like, it starts to sink into her what <sighs> that looks like for her own daughter. Not right? that June makes it really any easier for her. No, she she said, you know, of course, you know, those other things are part of it, but but she said that's not that's not it. Like if she her faith hadn't been rocked, hadn't been shaken by the realization she was giving give birth to a daughter who was going to be a commodity and treated like, you know, a slave really, she would have handled it just like she did the rest of him. It wouldn't have bothered her at all. But the fact that she is basically left without faith upon realizing she's going to have a daughter that she didn't have the tools to deal with being bullied where she, if it were one of the previous situations, she'd have been okay. Cause she mm -hmm. had her faith in Gilead and her faith that her role as handmaid was super important and her faith, you know what I mean? Cause she didn't have a defense in her head against anything June said. Right. Then it was, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. If I, what would I do to save my daughter from this place? Like, right. Then she starts realizing that June's anger is justified and she might do the same. It's a really good article. I thought, I, I think we need to talk about the fact that people who have post-traumatic stress disorder are not crazy mm. and yeah. are capable of being rational and right. Mm -hmm. And it's, they're not always going to appear all shaky either. Yeah, they're not like fucking. It's like the thing I went off on last week about the sexism implicit and the idea that June can't make good decisions because she's a woman and overly emotional. That mm -hmm. people were saying, well, she's all tore up with her emotions. This is why she's being dumb. It's like, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> I could be tore up about my emotions. It does not make me capable of making good decisions. And how dare you imply that about women? Mm -hmm. And the same thing here with this shit about people with PTSD. If anything, it should inform June's decisions. It's absolutely true. You don't see Janine going off being half cocked. And why is that? Do you think maybe because Janine has been beaten, raped, suicidal, lost an eyeball. 
Let's mm-hmm. talk about Janine's post-traumatic stress disorder that leaves her in a position to behave better. To constantly seek out, uh, you know, to seek out good things from her abusers. Yup. And that's not to say that June's experience of post-traumatic stress disorder is wrong. No, there's all sorts of ways to react. It's on a, it's on a spectrum, right? And it has a lot to do with like the person's baseline mental health to begin with. And Janine came in with a whole lot more baggage than June. Mm. She was gang raped and had a child because of it. Right. And, you know, was drug and alcohol, had problems with drugs and alcohol before she got there. Like there's issues for Janine that are more than June. So Janine's process of it is slightly different, but mm-hmm. the show rolling back on June, who was, you know, I think what it does is it just proves the point that what's his name made about her, which was that she doesn't fully think through her consequences to which her and her husband got together and they didn't think about the consequences for his wife. Mm-hmm. That her and Luke are both impulsive. Oh, and yeah. were impulsive before. This has just made that impulse, impulsive shit worse. Anyway, so we're here to talk about it. And we really only have one, one theme for this week. Well, I'm sure the rest of you have others. I did see, I did see one other option that was notably remarked upon on Reddit. And so we might squirrel that in here somewhere, but it seems pretty clear that the main subject or the main theme of this episode is once again, our favorite trauma. trauma, so much trauma. <laughs> Save that trauma for your mama. Yeah, I like that one. So, and in this episode, we get to see trauma from two perspectives. One, we are used to seeing trauma through their eyes, and another one that gives us a window into a character whose traumatic life has framed their current existence. And then we have another character who we don't really get the inside scoop on, but we do see the consequences of their trauma. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, do we. So loved it. Eh. I mean, story-wise, I liked it, but... Yeah. I just want to say, the next person who hurts Janine is going to have to fight me. Oh my goodness. Poor Janine. I, I feel so bad for her. She just keeps getting crap thrown at her. Bitch, I'm gonna if they I uh, seriously it's uncalled for. Uncalled for. She's not a punching bag. Exactly. No matter what Reddit says. Fuck. By the way, I do want to mention this because we just did sort of discuss it. <laughs> this this meme posted by Slate144 on on the Handmaid's Tale subreddit. You are a genius. Seriously, this is like one of the best freaking memes I have ever seen. It made me snort. Ugly laugh. Ugly laughter happened. So thank you so much. So while we're on that, let's, um, whose trauma do we want to start with? Hmm. Let's start with Aunt Lydia's because we all got excited about seeing a backstory of Aunt Lydia. Right. Let's, so let's do it. Why don't you like roll us into what? You know, your takeaway from Aunt Lydia's vignette in the show was? I really loved the scenes 
you know, it shows even if it was just a little nibble, little nibbles of of her. I thought it was it was very well put together. But I think that there is previous trauma that she has not dealt with, probably involving her ex husband, because she did mention him as a mistake. I think that really kind of possibly formats between that and some guilt of the trauma based up in her life. I think that's a very fair assessment. I get this distinct impression from Lydia that, and having watched that, you know, watched this episode and seen this whole sort of story play out, that she, one, wanted to have children really badly, but was not able to, is not able to for some reason. She doesn't discuss her own children. So my guess is that this marriage with this guy was not conducive to children mm-hmm. and that she's kind of unlike like we've talked about the difference in our these characters between religiosity and faith right a mm-hmm. few times that she's one of these people who has found refuge in faith she has a cheap really seems to be a believer yeah she uses it sort of to hide from her trauma Mm -hmm. a little bit you know forcing herself to help others rather than help herself yeah so it reads kind of interesting about what maybe her previous trauma was did you do any musing about that like what her relationship with her ex-husband was it had to have been bad i'm thinking like maybe he left her for somebody younger or he cheated on her or something because she seems really expressing her sexuality and being rebuked seemed to to really be tough on her and she couldn't face the idea that even though jim said that he wasn't ready for that he still said he wanted to see her again but in her mind she had screwed everything up yeah like she heard a big no a no forever and not a no for now yeah she did she heard a no forever a lot of shame about that issue about sex in particular oh yeah like there there was nothing to be ashamed about i mean they took each other's signals. Maybe she pushed a little further, but he didn't tell her no forever. He told her no for now. I wonder, too, if it was that she took the initiative. It could have been the shame for that. So it's like wondering, if this is like just a hunger for human connection that's in her that drove that? Or if she's a woman who, if maybe she was the one that did the cheating. I don't know. Maybe it could have been emotional cheating on her end and physical on the other. But I don't know. I want to see more. <laughs> It was really, it was interesting, wasn't it? And then the wrath at herself over it and her judgment of the young mother. Noelle. Yeah, Noelle for all of her stuff. It tends to me to read, tends to read for me as either envy or jealousy or, but for the grace of God, there go I. Mm -hmm. Which, because generally when people are jealous of you or envious of you, they judge what they don't have that you do. Like, mm-hmm. why do you deserve it? Or why are you doing that? Or if they don't feel comfortable, you know, wearing red shoes and a purple skirt, they're going to say, boy, that looks stupid. And mm-hmm. it, you know what I mean? So I like, I, I'm just not sure how that reads, but it did humanize Lydia a great deal. Mm-hmm. And kind of does show a lot of, it, it did mention multiple times that she has so much love to give. She had a very warm and loving personality. I think still parts of it show out, but it's just, it's still twisted because of Gilead. Yeah. She's learned to, to, to like layer it under everything else, but it definitely, she's sort of taken on the role of the abuser that says, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And who says this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Like she really almost believes that's true Mm -hmm. that torturing the handmaids is more painful for her than it is for them yeah and that it's for the better good of them yeah 
I mean, I can see that because, of course, for her, it's compounded because she does it all the time. They only suffer their own trauma, but she has to be present for all of theirs. Which I think kind of does point towards the alcohol use between the aunts. Yes. Yes, it does. So that was really interesting. And Kay found some stuff on Reddit that pertains to this. So let's let's dive into that. Let's hear about it, girl. It was from the post, The Aunts Choosing Handmaids and Discussing Handmaids and Families Candidly by Northern Nutlenning. I'm going to try and say that. I hope that's the correct way of saying that. If you're listening and it's wrong, let me know. (laughs) They had mentioned it was interesting to see the secrets of the aunts and everything. And further down, Undersea Dreaming mentioned the fact they were drinking was pretty wild, especially in the flashback. She was hesitant to drink champagne, but now they're drawing that parallel now. (laughs) Fraulein Farts was the one who mentioned that alcohol was used in Nazi Germany as a reward to lessen psychological trauma of the atrocities committed by the SS. So we both kind of looked up some info. We did. We were studious for once. And I think we both got different papers. (laughs) We did. We did get different papers. But apparently this is actually, there's historical documentation for the fact that the SS and the SA engaged in drinking rituals. And it looks by what I can see from the abstract, it's suggested that it was, it was excessive drinking and rituals to prepare themselves and reward themselves for atrocities. It was. It seems like that's what I read in um, Stone Cold Killers or Drunk with Murder, Alcohol and Atrocities During the Holocaust. Um, Honestly, if you just look up SS and alcohol, you should probably find both of our papers on there. Mine was from Cambridge.org, and it is just an abstract. I mean, if you have access to this, you can read um, the article that is Drinking Rituals, Masculinity, and Mass Murder in Nazi Germany by Edward B. Westerman. Hey, he did mine too. (laughs) Oh, well then maybe maybe it's, you know, some continued work. But I find it fascinating really that that was the one place where Nazism sort of just slid in terms of its vigilance against alcohol. Mm -hmm. Against anything that could be against the moral codes. Right. Apparently they had made some moves towards abolition of alcohol, making it more, making it a crime to be drunk and some other things in Nazi Germany, but they couldn't go to complete prohibition. And this speaks to part of it. So it does give us an eye not only on DeMartha's use of alcohol, which are not DeMartha's. Aunts. It also gives us an eye on the aunt's use of alcohol, but it also, there's the, added benefit that we also see why the commanders do mm-hmm. why commanders have access to alcohol and aunts have access to alcohol it makes Absolutely. you wonder if the guardians also have access to alcohol in the same amount i know at least the eyes do because right. they're able to transfer it around this is a curious it's another curious connection between nazi germany and gilead that i think is interesting to explore. And then I think you have a great point about how that has also become a refuge for Lydia, considering she was kind of, I get the teetotaler vibe from her. Mm -hmm. Just, I'm sorry. It's just this entire episode for her was just so interesting. Right. It makes me wonder about season one, like episode two or episode one, where we get Janine's backstory. And And Lydia is so hard on her because she was drinking and engaging in drugs when she got gang raped. Mm -hmm. I just drew that parallel. I wonder if that's what happened to Lydia. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to see more. The alcohol played a part in her 
downfall. Well, the end of her marriage in some way. Maybe. Curiouser and curiouser. I don't know if we'll ever get enough of side stories for these other characters. And I'm guessing that part of that is because June is becoming problematic. Yeah. So we end up looking to other characters in order to fulfill our desire to continue to watch the show because we have to have some other focus of interest besides June. Mm-hmm. Not to say June isn't isn't good, but, you know, I don't know. After this episode, I'm kind of... Yeah. So what we see from Lydia is her justifications based in her trauma for the way that she acts. And we're given an opportunity through the use of alcohol and some of the conversations she has during that discussion about where these handmaids should go, like reassignment, and how she handles June in particular. That whole situation kind of get an idea, I think, about Lydia's track to where she's at. And how she processes these events and how she works with her own trauma, I think. Don't you think? Yeah, I completely agree with that. She's a codependent, like pretty bad. And I get the impression she feels like if she could control everybody, then everybody would be happy and no one would get hurt anymore. And why doesn't anyone understand that? Well, I mean, yeah, she presses uh, Noelle to get a better job. She presses her to think about her son. She tried to push them into church because she feels like that's what's going to to help them the most. Yeah, she's kind of controlling. Um, Her codependency is very controlling. She wants approval from the hierarchy Mm -hmm. and that if she gets all the girls to behave themselves then there's no pressure on her to beat them and then they could all be happy but then you have these bad apples these bad actors these difficult handmaids who rock the boat and make it impossible for her to be the beneficent aunt lydia that she wants to be yeah she just wants to love yeah and instead of blame the system for the failings she blames the handmaids which is interesting. Because at least for first generation, they had made the assumption that these are the first generation handmaids and they're all sinners. This this isn't a, I volunteered for this. They're all sinners. I think it's interesting how that trauma works. And you can see it for a hot minute. Her The, the struggle for her at the end when she's, when Alf Matthew is like spinning around with her Glock in her hand, right? Mm-hmm. And she's... And Lydia's like, oh, no, like, you were a good one. Yeah. <laughs> just just her tone of voice is like, you you know, in that scene where she's just like, oh, no, you were a good one. Because the scene before, she just completely goes, you know, we have to protect this one. So we've talked about the easy character, the easiest <laughs> of them. Do we want to talk about off Matthew next or do we want to talk about... Miss June. Let's talk about June. I have some problems with Miss June. <laughs> so do I. So let's let's rock into that. So there's been a lot of scuttlebutt, not just on Reddit, but elsewhere, about what in the actual fuck is going on with June. And I <clears throat> am just once more going to mention this before we get into it too far. First and foremost, the way that individuals all process trauma is unique to their their own inner psyche there are certain things that are universal yes but at the same time the way that june is handling this is not a whole lot different than anything else we've seen out of june I came to this realization after last week in our episode of like, June is dumb. That was just sort of like, 
whole message, but I've given it a lot more thought. And, and I realized too, that June is never, has never been, well, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but she suffers in some respects, the exact same presumption of privilege that Serena does. Mm-hmm. And Just in different ways. Yep. And that really informs the way that she responds to things that she doesn't like. It explains why in the beginning she was fairly willing to capitulate to demands and why she's fallen back on, at times, on the manipulation, using sex to manipulate her, to attempt to manipulate her commanders. She definitely used it fairly effectively with Fred, not so much with Joe. Because lords don't want it. Because that's not what motivates Joe. Mm -hmm. So, but she showed before Gilead that she could be impulsive and that she didn't always think out the consequences of her actions before she took them. And a perfect example is the beginning of her relationship with Luke. It never occurred to her that she didn't have a right to presume upon another woman's husband, believing at that point, I think, that if the relationship was so great, he wouldn't be willing to, like, sneak off to hotel rooms with her. Mm-hmm. So I'm, or, got, or got caught up in their own feelings that they didn't think about anybody else but themselves at that <laughs> moment. So I've had to eat a little crow on this with June. I realized that what we're seeing is just, I've had to eat a little crow on June and realize that what we're seeing here is just an expression of her personality, but like times like a hundred because of the trauma that she's not, she's not suited for the role that she wants to see herself in as a deliverer from evil because she's not capable of making good decisions. And I think, again, this is going to bring up some hot stuff with some people who want to defend her and vilify Lawrence for the things he said to her. But the reality is that he was right, spot on Mm -hmm. with June. It doesn't justify his methods of sorting, you know, the Gilead sorting hat that is Joseph Lawrence that determines whether a person's going to be serial raped or work in a, in a death colony camp or just be salvaged. It doesn't mm-hmm. justify that no, apparatus no. at all, but he is maybe a better judge of people than even she is. She just knows how to manipulate them, but she doesn't really understand them in a way that I think maybe he does. What were your thoughts? I think he understands trauma a lot more than he puts on, especially involving his wife. Because when June snaps out at him, all he says is that had to feel good and then just walks away. What do you think about avenging June and this whole business? This, this, this using her power as kind of a de facto leader for the handmaids to punish one of their own. What do you think about all that? I think it goes back to what June said in the beginning, that you are a spy for each other. There's no true camaraderie. And it's always just who can get the best on each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think she's given up on any hope of, like, legitimately given up on any hope of, like, saving them or actually helping? And now she's just in a... 
well, she's in that state of, I need, to, I, I'm in pain, so others should be in pain too. And it's, she can't think, think for a minute about, of Matthew's situation. She didn't think about it. She, you know, she doesn't care to think about what she could do for this other woman who is suffering and clearly could be have turned as she got to her, uh, to her new pregnancy. But instead, in fact, aims to hurt her specifically. Yeah, she was responsible for your, your Martha being found out, but she's also in the same situation. There's a lot of deep psychology in this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that a lot of people don't talk about either about situations like this, there's a, there's a heavy premium put on those who inform. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in Gilead, it's anywhere. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's a social control that is pretty effectively used that allows the hierarchy to not invest as much of their own resources in policing their behavior of of their captives. Mm -hmm. And it also stops them from having any form of real solidarity because you you don't know who's a threat. You also, you can't figure out who could be a friend at all. And I don't know for a book editor, June seems to not know a lot, which is sad, but you know, I can't judge it. I'm done judging June. Okay. I'm not. (laughs) I still think it's terrible what she's done. And I, and I feel but at the same time, she's not responding any differently than people in any number of other similar situations, like situations, have acted. I mean, there were people that were killed in in concentration camps, not by Nazis. Well, not directly by Nazis, but mm-hmm. killed by their fellows because they were informants. Yeah. And what all of them are failing to see, of course, is that the system is set up to make them do this. And that the reality that June is ignoring because she's angry and she has no power over the system is to focus this wrath on her, on off Matthew instead of the the system. It is. And it, it, she finds somebody who she believes is a true believer in Gilead and not the fact that it is another woman placed in another terrible situation. The only person she's tried to reach out to and connect with was Emily, and that was it. And Emily had to do it first. Yeah, and she has a definite sense of superior superiority over Janine. What we It's like the veil has been lifted from the way she has treated Janine in the past, like it was care and concern, but really it was the same sort of maternalistic horseshit thing that Lydia does with all of them. Mm -hmm. Because if she actually cared that much about what Janine had to say, when Janine told her she was going overboard with, with off Matthew, it might've actually spurred June to think for a minute about it. Yeah. But instead she, she was acting like a little bit of a mob boss there. Yeah. She does it. She pulls a Serena. She doubled down. She doubles she down on her fuckery. Just the, it, I think she felt like that little bit of power was all this, that she needed at that moment. You know, like I'm in pain. So this will make it feel better for a little bit. To slide into sadism on June is, is sad, but it is something that does take place with people in these cir- sorts of circumstances. And so we're not getting anything that isn't, wasn't extant. So we see evidence of June's almost disassociative pursuit of pain for the pleasure of watching it. It's a bit like self-harm. Yes. Which people who have trauma or depression and stuff like that 
often can do because it feels like it's the only things that they can control, kind of like eating disorders. The world is crazy around you, but you can control this. Yes. Which I'm going to also mention is, you know, deeply tied to other really unsavory psychological manifestations of trauma when we're dealing with people who have a sociopathology development. People who are criminally sadistic and use that as a method to control other human beings. Mm -hmm. And that addiction to that control, that necessity to have it because they feel so out of control. So they get off on doing this because it gives them a sense of mastery. And June is showing us the effect that her trauma in Gilead is having on her in the long run. I mean, she's separating herself constantly. Like any scene with any other of the handmaids, she's away. She's not with them. Yep. She is definitely going there. And I think it's interesting too, the, to sort of nod to some of the concerns about off Matthew's trauma too, and that she doesn't ever want to be touched. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for somebody who, who's like Janine, who wants to help, but she straight up can't understand why she doesn't want to be touched. It's the only way she knows how to comfort. Yeah, because Janine's experience of this trauma is to completely submit her ego to anything that makes her feel good. Mm -hmm. So she's she needs to be given affection and cuddled through her trauma. Mm -hmm. And she'll even accept, like she does with Lydia, the hand that feeds you beating you too. Yeah. Stockholm syndromes again. Yep. Or just typical women who are in relationships with men who abuse them or children who are raised in abusive families. Very true. Once you learn how to work the system, you do everything you can to be complicit in your own abuse, really, because you feel like it's necessary. Try to be as good as possible. And when you're not, you accept your punishments and you justify your punishments almost as much as the punisher justifies them to you. Sometimes you're just left to figure it out on your own while you got beat. And if you've spent an entire, a great deal of your lifetime dealing with this and trying to figure out why something would happen to you like this, it probably doesn't take much for you to be like, well, I deserve this. And if I do better, it'll, it'll be done. It'll stop. Yes. So we see Janine processing all of this in a very different way. It suggests that Janine had a very different upbringing that leaves her more vulnerable in some respects to Lydia's form of control, which is really sad, but it's understandable. And like I said, it also cements the idea that June is a lot like Serena and that she's never really had to struggle for a whole lot and has never really had anybody question her behavior Mm -hmm. or her attitudes or her thinking. And now that she's found herself in a position where no amount of manipulation and no amount of her old tactics is working, she just plain can't get ahead, then she retreats into the same sort of brutality that Serena does. Because let's not forget, and I haven't, even though I love Serena, I love you, Serena, (laughs) that she beat the shit out of June. She did. Instead of being an adult and using her words. (laughs) Yeah. She beat the shit out of her because she wasn't used to anybody usurping her authority. Precisely. Which is the response of a privileged person. When when their words fail them and they still don't get what they want, then they resort to manipulation. In this case, both June and Serena have now become capable of 
excusing others and abusing others for whatever the ends are at the moment, including feeling better because you're angry or hurt. I think it's interesting too, June's face when off Matthew spins around and points that gun at her. Mm -hmm. How do you read that? June's response to that. I think she realizes for a second, oh gosh, this could actually be a thing. But then that whole thing of looking towards Lydia and nodding, like trying to be like, remember, this is a woman who hurt you too. Yeah, see, I part of me was like, I think she wants her to shoot her. It, would, it wouldn't be too far out of an idea to think that. I think June is essentially a coward when it comes to this, that instead of kill herself, she'd rather someone else kill her. This is, I, I think the other reason she's running headlong into danger is that she wants to die. Yeah. Death by cop, essentially, kind of thing. Yeah. But the implication is sort of that if you're going to take me out, that's fine, but take her too. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you're going to get two shots off, don't forget the person who hurt you too. Yeah. Don't just pop a cap at me. Get Make sure you get Lydia while we're at it. Yeah. Don't forget what she did to you. Yeah. It's fucked up. So fucked up. <sighs> So fucked up. And it's an interesting, it can be an interesting exercise for all of us to muse on how we would react in this situation. But I don't think anybody who's speaking on any, in any forum on public media really knows how they would react to this situation. Oh, there's plenty of people who are like, well, I would be uh, fighting across. It's like, you don't know how when something traumatic happens, you're going to react. No, you don't. You can spend an entire time saying, oh, well, if this kind of thing happened, I would absolutely respond like this. And then once it happens, you you fall back on fight, flee, or freeze. Yeah. And more than likely to fall back on the first time you were traumatized, exactly how you responded then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was anger or shame or fear, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So how are you going to, how are you going to do it? And that's what people are reduced to. So you can say whatever you want and say that you've intellectualized these things or grown up and grown past or all those, you you can tell yourself anything, but I think it really does come down to that, whatever it was, the first, your first traumatic event, how you responded is going to be the one that you fall back to when you get, you get hit again. And June is definitely in the wrath place. She's wanting to fight, but she also wants to die. I think she does want to die. Now I just feel like that's pretty clear that she's got a death wish. And now that she doesn't know where Hannah is and absolutely no one will help her. And, or maybe they honestly don't know where Hannah and the Mackenzies have gone. She doesn't have any, she doesn't feel like she has anything to lose. You know, it's a, it's a tough time. You know, you, you want to say, yes, hold on. Yes, hold on. And you, you know, you can do this, but it's like, it, it's really tough to just accept that, yeah. that, yeah, you should. It's just a tough one. And I, I don't know what I would be able to do in that situation either. Right. I mean, I can say here, sit here and with my logical mind say, well, well, there now you have boxed yourself into a corner where there's absolutely no way that you are realistically going to get Hannah. Mm-hmm. And you have another daughter who the Canadian government is trying to decide what to do with her. It might be in your best interest to escape to Canada and present them with the alternative of the biological mother. Yeah. I can say that, but I don't know that I wouldn't do what Joan has done or is doing. I don't know that. I, I know that logically i think that would be the smart decision would be to escape now and go to the one daughter that she has gotten to safety though the safety now is tenuous and questioned you know but that's me right now sitting you know in front of my computer with a cup of coffee and it's it's not quite the same as 
be in June. Yeah. So about off Matthew. Oh, that poor gal. I, I feel I feel for her. I honestly do. Kind of like Janine, that she's following this system that's supposedly supposed to protect her, even though it's a horrific system. And I think it's interesting that people that are, are into the show but don't spend a whole lot of time reading or whatever about it. And I'm hoping that maybe we'll catch a few of you that don't really have the time to, but podcasts like this um, and Three Busy Ladies and May Day give you some insight into the show in a way that you know they, you can't get other ways is there was a really good interview done this week with the actress actually who played off Matthew. Her name is Ashley Lathrop or Ashley Lathrop. And she discusses in this article with Harper's Bazaar about what actually was going on with off Matthew. And a lot of people have made the mention that it is all a result of June's bullying this mess. And She goes on to basically shatter that thinking by stating that what really did it for Off Matthew and the beginning of this entire slide for her was realizing that after three sons, she was going to give birth to a girl. And it suddenly made her confront her own situation and circumstances in Gilead. This is why we see her switch her her stated point of view on June's situation with Holly from hoping the girl gets returned to, I, I'm praying for your daughter and your husband in Canada that she can stay there. This is mm-hmm. like literally why that swap happens. And as the birth gets closer and closer, she feels more and more acutely a terror about her daughter having to be in Gilead. I mean, there's really, you could sit there and say that, oh, you know, think about it. She's, she's possibly going to be a wife or an econo person at the very worst. But then you got to realize it's, it's not safe for anybody. I mean, a wife can get sent to the colonies. What's the chance of a commander's daughter becoming a handmaid? Right. And that if, June's bullying had any position in this. She talks about that it's just as Op Matthew is starting to have this awareness of the realities. She also then the isolation that all of the handmaids feel because of this report on each other and this whole business that goes on, that isolation that they feel is only intensifying because June's displeasure with her. Mm-hmm. And... Like we said, she's playing a mob boss, you know. And June definitely is. It's like Lord of the Flies in there right now. It is. I mean, they're they're all doing things that you sit there and go, are you crazy? Like with the whole spitting in the glass or like there's two aunts right there. And the rest of you aren't protected like June. You know, you're not all pregnant. You're not all going on TV. So what are you doing? It's ugly. They're all angry and they've decided to take it out on someone in their own at their own level. And it makes no sense too. Well, but it's human behavior to do that. It's animal behavior, to be frank. If any of you have ever raised chickens or any bird, in fact, pigs will do this too. And in closed farm situations, enclosed raising situations, they will, when somebody is wounded in the pen, they start. Yeah, going after. Yep. Yep. They do. That's why they call it a pecking order. And it has to do with dominance and submission. And when you see a group of people as dominated, 
as handmaids, when a hierarchy begins to evolve within them, there is going to be a clear loser. And off Matthew, at least at this point, seems to be a victim of that sort of dysfunctional mentality out of this counterculture or subculture that has evolved within the handmaids and and how they deal with the stress of being abused the way that they are on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. She's not a part of the team. It's a rough time and you, you got to understand that these girls are like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And June has accomplished things that they all wish they could. So it's really hard for them not to see her as a leader. Mm-hmm. You know, she's escaped. Yep. She's gotten her baby out. Yep. And yeah. she's not been punished. She's probably at this point sort of taken a on an almost talismanic power within that group of people. Like she's a savior. Mm-hmm. Cult leader sort of nature even. That they all want to impress, you know, June. And to exhibit some kind of her, some portion of her magic. Which is, you know, getting away with these things of treating up Matthew horribly. I, I feel so bad for of Matthew, even though God just June could see of Matthew was at a cracking point. She did. When she was talking to Lydia. She specifically went out of her way to once again show her that she's being shunned. Yep. And it didn't matter how much Janine was trying to tell her, Are you okay? Is it all right? Didn't all this it didn't matter because her own walking partner, who's supposed to be her friend, is essentially how Gilead was throwing that out there. It's companionship to do this. Yeah, except that they know damn well it's not. But the psychological impacts of what they've done with the walking partners was not lost on them. Mm-hmm. But being like, no, she she straight up knows. She knew what she was doing. I mean, she may not have thought that it would have gone to that extent, but she knew she was going to snap. And it's it's kind of like, June, what did you, why did you think this would be a good idea? She doesn't think it's going to, she's not thinking. She's just no. reacting and she's angry and she wants the world to burn. Mm-hmm. And clearly at this point, she doesn't really care who she hurts either. And, and at this point, she could probably even be thinking, well, with you know, you know, after the fact of Matthew being dead means that it's another set of aunts, another set of wives that are hurt because they're not going to have this baby. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially she is protecting another girl from any further to delivering right people into safety, even if that safety is death, because mm-hmm. it's preferable to what she feels she's suffering right now. It's really dark. It is. And I, I was just upset with June this entire episode of just being, I understand why she's doing it in a certain way, but it's still like, it's upsetting to see somebody who is as, you know, in delicate a need as Matthew, or Natalie, you know, mm-hmm. not, you know, I mean, she was originally trying to very carefully take care of Janine in yeah. the very beginning, you know, to help somebody who was, you know, off and needed to be protected and taken care of. And now here she is specifically victimizing somebody who who needs help. Yeah, who is looks to have a different set because it's a little more intellectualized than what we get with Janine, mm-hmm. but a similar response, right? Yeah. Janine wants to protect her daughter because Janine loves babies. She do love babies. But uh, Matthew wants to protect her daughter because she understands the reality here. Mm-hmm. And you'd think June would at least be able to empathize with that because that's June's entire motivation. It was. It's almost like she's making Natalie pay for her own mistakes. Yeah. But I don't know. We'll have to see how it's going to go on. But it's still so super frustrating to watch that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm not going to stop watching, but still. Right. It's really hard. 
it's really hard. It's super dark. And people are super angry. I mean, there's a lot of complaining and the whole thing about the plot armor. Although I am going to say June does give us explanation for this plot armor. Mm-hmm. You know, TV. For this season. It would be very hard for Serena and Fred to argue that they have a happy, well-adjusted home life and a handmaid who willingly gave over her children if she disappears mm-hmm. or if she suddenly has a burn that's showable on her arm or cause it seems like these, I don't know if these are being filmed live. Are they being filmed live? I don't know if anybody's even mentioned the shows or well, no, like the, Fred's Fred's propaganda films, Fred's propaganda. I think they're streamed. Cause if it's streamed, all she has to do is turn her arm out to show the burn or open her mouth to show that she's got no tongue anymore. Right. That's why she hasn't had her mouth ringed. They can't trust her to put her in front of a camera after they pierce her face. She's it's a good explanation for plot armor, but June, calm it down. Yeah, because once that baby is back or all hope is lost of getting it, mm-hmm. she no longer serves any purpose. And I, I don't know if she thinks that she can somehow make it better by dying beforehand. Well, now she's at least not worried about Dan dying in front of Hannah, is she? No, that's gone now. Yeah, she's, it's a mess. It's very complex. These are all very complex responses to trauma and very complex processings that are going on with all of these people. And so it's important to not judge that. Mm -hmm. We can judge maybe how the story is being constructed, the argument that June should have been dead a long time ago. And while she has plot armor for this season, what was her plot armor for last season? And my argument is she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. Pregnant and uh, breastfeeding. So like, she has plot armor for sure, but it's semi-explainable plot armor, whether we like the explanation or don't. She gives it to us in this episode when she talks back to Aunt Lydia. She most def does. And Lydia still holding out hope to redeem her. Mm-hmm. Talk about Pollyanna. Gosh. Although now people are, I have not watched, I lied. I watched one trailer, but people are suggesting that there may be a redemption arc for June. I'm not sure how. I don't know. I don't know how we redeem because we can't really redeem Serena. The best you're ever going to get with Serena is drawing, making, you know, coming to a draw. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know how we redeem June. I don't know. She's done a lot of things. Unless we just say, well, she was in a bad situation and bad things happened and she did what she had to sur- to survive like we do with Emily. But Emily, to our knowledge, never purposely went out of her way to hurt other handmaids. No, she'd never hurt another handmaid this is as far as we've level, ever seen. Right. This is a whole new level of fuckery. Mm-hmm. It is. And foaming at the mouth, essentially. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so, the foaming at the mouth. Well, we've covered pretty clearly the main theme or the, the theme that we locked onto about trauma. I hope so. <laughs> and the other one, of course, I think is shame, but that's part of it. You can't really divorce shame from trauma because oftentimes one of the ways that people who suffer trauma compartmentalize it as they feel ashamed of their actions that got them there and blame themselves for the trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of locked up in it. It most definitely is. So let's take a look at some other stuff that was on Reddit this week that we wanted to do shout outs for. I just want to start out and I think I already mentioned the Everlast meme for Janine. 
Oh my by goodness. Slate 144. I just love it. But then there's the other one, which I also loved, which was some thoughts I've had watching this season by Reina Pepiata. Yes. This um, conglomerate meme made up of fantastic parts from some of the best shows in TV for the last 10 years. <laughs> it's great. Glorious. This thing is glorious. You are a genius, ma'am. And thank you. Yes. I want to give a shout out to Queen of Understanding or Queen of Understand for her post baseline trauma, mm-hmm. which I think gets to some of the stuff that we were talking about, that how these people are processing this has a lot to do with what they came in with. The baggage they came in with is kind of how we're seeing them process. And I think it's really good. It is, most definitely. It's a really good thread. And all the comments in it are pretty thoughtful. And I enjoyed reading this thread a lot. Did you have one? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, you did. That Aunt's Choosing Handmaid's one. Mm -hmm. Did you mention that already? I did, but I can always mention it again if you'd like. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic one as well for the historical context we get. And then I didn't mention it earlier, but I should have. We have another article that we'd like to point you guys to, which is The Handmaid's Tale Pulls Back the curtain on Aunt Lydia's past. There is a bit of an interview, some conversation with Anne Dowd in this as well, talking about Lydia as a character. It's on the vulture.com. Um, we'll put links to this in the show notes so you can take a chance or take a look at this article as well. I think it's really good. She discusses unfit and specific, and she says she talks very much about how shame plays a huge part in Lydia's in Lydia's life for her and how she processes information. She's a very shame based individual, so it's a really good from the uh, actress perspective. Yes, and wanted to give that short out, uh, shout out to uh, Northern Nutlegging Elenning uh, for the aunts choosing handmaids. Uh, post and then of course to Fraulein Farts for the alcohol used in Nazi Germany comment on that same thread. Yes. These are really, really, really interesting. Some really good stuff out there in the midst of some really unpleasant stuff. I did want to say too there was one other. I want to make a specific shout out to Phelan2222 and their post spoiler season 3 episode 8. Please stop feeling disgusted. By the way, this post won both a gold and a silver. It was the request for folks on Reddit and elsewhere to stop saying they were disgusted by Aunt Lydia's almost sex scene. The making out. Yes. And I was also a bit aghast at sort of the idea that people were disgusted by it. One, well, Lydia takes the initiative when he tells her to stop, he does. So there's no lack of consent. Noah stated she pulls back. So I'm not sure what that issue is about. If it was seeing Lydia's desperation for human contact, that's a human thing. And I'm sorry that disgusts you, but people have that. It's not just an age thing. And if it's an ageist or a thing about her weight or anything else that's superficial in your judgment of that scene is disgusting, it makes me very sad. You may not want to see humans have real relationships, but I do. And understanding Lydia's character matters to me. I don't think the scene was gratuitous. I don't think it was mm-hmm. callous in any way. I think it was exceptionally well done for and 
explains a great deal of where Lydia is coming from. And it isn't, it certainly isn't gratuitous in the same way that some of the scenes between Nick and June have been. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So let's for a minute consider how we will scream for shipping and we want this that and the other thing out of these relationships but then when we have somebody who doesn't isn't young white and beautiful having a relationship suddenly it's disgusting you're really disappointed i love this post from this person who was like let's let's not go there thank you very much to feeling underscore two two hit it right on the nose with this post you did great. And I think that's it for us for this week. Uh, and well, that's, I think that's it for this episode of Handmaid's Tale. I do believe so. Deep this, is a heavy episode. this is a heavy episode. It, it might have been a wine episode, which would have been fine, except that we started this at like seven o'clock this morning. So no wine right now. <laughs> no wine, just caffeine. Just sweet, coffee. sweet, merciful caffeine. And we are going to roll right from this bad episode. Well, that's not a bad. Well, I don't know. Roughy. It's a roughy. It's a rough episode. We're going to roll right into episode one, season three of Harlots, but not on this tape. So you won't, if you don't watch, you watch one and not the other, you don't have to listen to this. But it'll be all good. But we're getting there. We're getting, we're going to work on that next. So until next week. Which might also, we just might as well be honest here. Since we're doing two episodes a week, they may not come out on the same days. And mm-hmm. they may be slightly late. Maybe. Both my, Yeah, and both myself and Kay have some stuff going on outside of podcasting that is making this getting together and recording tough. So hopefully, we will have it out next weekend for sure, both episodes, but we just may not have them out. At our usual time. We'll try though. We will try. But that's the situation for right now. And until we are here with you again, blessed be the fight. Blessed be the fight. And that's a wrap on another episode of Handmaids and Harlots, the podcast. We are indebted to EDM Mond for use of their song, Memories, Innocence of a Girl, available through Audio Library. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please smash your like button wherever you find us. Follow us on Twitter at HandmaidsH, where you can make comments, share news and thoughts, or email us directly at HandmaidsNHarlots at gmail.com. And for essays by either myself or Kay, check out and subscribe to our WordPress blog at handmaidsandharlots.wordpress.com. Until next time, peace be with you.